but special time in the book of Romans coming, so we're saying today, 2 Corinthians. Now, 2 Corinthians, we're, I said we're headed back into Route 66, the open road, but 2 Corinthians suggests to be more of an off-road experience. It suggested to me more of a uphill climb, if you will. So what I want to do this morning in 2 Corinthians, I'm reminded of a song. I'm not going to sing it for you. It's an old quartet I heard years ago, and actually a long time ago in a land far, far away, really. But it went something like this. It's not an easy road that we're traveling to heaven. It's not an easy road. But our Lord helps us along the way. He's the one that we follow. And in this road that's ahead of us, in this uphill climb, if you will, of 2 Corinthians, we're going to be reminded of what the Christian life is really all about. What is it? What is this route that we're on? What is this climb? What does it look like? Making sense of the scenery, something that helps us in a, in a, um, in a, in a hike, in a climb, to know I really can make it, I can keep going, is if you have a map, especially a topographical map, a map that explains the ups and hopefully some downs to you, that you can see what's ahead, and uh, knowing the lay of the land, you make more sense of the journey. That's what I want to do in Second Corinthians. I want to set before us this uphill climb, and a climb that we will then agree we'll join in on. Some of you said, when it comes to hiking, count me out. But I hope on this climb, I can count you in. I hope on this climb, we will join together and say, yeah, it's not an easy road that we're traveling to glory, but this is a road that's worth it. That picture that you have on your bulletin, I think that's a picture of Dog Mountain, which is one of, the, one of the favorite climbs here in the gorge. It's also one of the steepest climbs in part on the gorge. It reminds me of another, there's another hike in the gorge where there's two signs. At a point, you go along the trail and you get a choice. It says, you can go this way, but it's difficult. Or you can instead take this alternative route and the arrow points up and the sign says, very difficult. That's a great option, isn't it? You're scratching your head. You're saying, what about option three, which is back down that way? That's kind of the way you feel sometimes when you're hiking. And yet, it is worth it when you get to the summit and you look out. And even some of the right time of year, the flowers along the way can make that step-by-step uphill grind worth it as well. So a little bit of hiking, a little bit of, of uh, God's Word as we jump into Second Corinthians. If I could give you a three-part outline, it would look like this. That... The first, and this is real common, people see the breakdown of, of, of 2 Corinthians, it's pretty obvious. Uh, chapters 1 to 7 uh, give really Paul's expression of the essence of the Christian life. Some people believe he's defending his ministry. I don't think it's so much of a defense. I think it's, it's he's describing, really, this is what it's about, folks. This is what it's supposed to look like. It's not unlike the way the Lord's Supper redefined that love feast. It's not all about all the food that I want to eat. It's about loving one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. It changes the whole direction of a, of a, of a feast. Am I there to eat or am I there to serve, doesn't it? And so the Christian life. Paul, Paul portrays his experience in the Christian life, which is not unique and unusual. His experience is supposed to be normal, like it or not. So I want to give that essence of the Christian life. He then gives them an example. 
in chapters 8 and 9, then he makes an urgent plea. It's an emotional plea. It's an urgent plea for them to join in following that example. So let me jump right in. I want to read some verses along the way from each chapter, but there are a lot of them, so we're going to need to move. So grab your Bibles. Uh, we're returning to Second Corinthians. We'll start in chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible to follow along, we'll be on page 964. All right, 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. I said this first section is all about the essence of Christ's life from Paul's experience. It's not an easy road that we're traveling to heaven. We're traveling to glory. But Jesus knows the way that I'm on. The, um, it's the living the way of Christ. Think of that uphill path as the way of Christ that you and I are traveling, that you and I are on. The way of Christ. What does it look like? Well, he describes in, uh, in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, he describes it like this. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort also. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Doesn't that sound inviting? Doesn't, sound that, doesn't that sound like the experience that you're hoping for? You say, it sounds like the experience that I'm in the midst of, but not what I was hoping for. Well, that's okay. How about if God's word actually helps us make sense of the difficulties that we find are all too common a part of real life? That faith should not deny, faith should make sense of, and faith should redeem to a far greater end. All right, there is suffering involved. And we're not going to interpret and understand that suffering according to the world. Look at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. I am not going to live life the ways of the world and according to the norms of common sense around me conventional wisdom. That's not the path that I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow a different path. I'm going to follow a path, chapter 2, of sacrificial serving rather than self-exalting. Sacrificial serving. Look at uh, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. If anyone caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but to some measure to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, their punishment by the majority is enough so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This is a restorative experience. Personal conflicts can be very difficult and yet can be redemptive, can be restorative. The whole purpose here was to restore this person into full fellowship again. Look at verse 14 to 16. Thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one a fragrance of death to death to the other a fragrance of life to life and who is sufficient for these things. Who is enough for this? This imagery there is of a great Roman triumph parade. When a general had conquered a land that had been a great victory, they would have this great procession and part of it, there were the, the smoke of the sacrifices and the incense offerings. These, these aromas would fill the air, especially all along the way that the procession would go down the main entrance into the city of Rome. And in the midst of that triumphant procession, that grand parade, there would be two kinds of people. There would be those who were captured 
and who were bound and who were on their way maybe to prison but probably to the Colosseum and to their death. They had been saved from the battlefield to be killed publicly in the arena. But in that procession also there were the victors. There were the the triumphant soldiers. And they're all smelling the same smells, the same aromas that fill the air. And to some of them, it's the grand aroma of victory. To others, it's it's the horrible aroma of defeat and death. Well, Paul grabs that imagery. It doesn't necessarily work it the same way. Um, all, all, all metaphors have their limitations. But he says, so are you as Christians. As we live this way of Christ, this way of suffering, as we live it, we will be an aroma of Christ to those around about us. Those who know him and love him as well, we will be an aroma of life unto life. To those who don't know him, they might not appreciate it. They may not like that fragrance of Christ that is on you that should be on you because it reminds them of death. It reminds them of their lack, of their being without God, their godlessness. I'd ask a question this morning. I, I love this question. I just had to insert it here somewhere in Second Corinthians. It, great, if you want to do a, well, I'm giving this to the youth so they hear it, but some of them aren't here, Ryan. How well do you smell? What a great thought, huh? When it comes to being a fragrance for Christ, how well do you smell? When it comes, I tell you, spend a few days in the woods with these guys and the question becomes very relevant. (laughs) How well do you smell? Especially when the mountain lakes are still very, very cold and only one of the eight was willing to to jump in and, 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 and get clean. I wasn't one of those, by the way. How well do you smell carrying that fragrance? Is the fragrance ours or is it of Christ? Is it of my self-exaltation or is it of his sacrifice? Well, the the chapters press on. Looking in chapter 3, the goal of the Christian life is the transformation into his likeness. The Corinthians were said to be Paul's letter of recommendation because of the work God had done in them, how God was changing them, how God wrote his word on their hearts. Because in verse 18... We are being transformed. This is the goal. The goal is not my comfort. The goal is not God's good things and blessings for me to enjoy in life. The goal is to know him even through suffering. And to be made into his likeness, the one who gave himself. It'll probably take some giving on my part. Look at verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, changed, metamorphosized. That butterfly word. Into the same image from one degree of glory to another, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the Spirit's work in us, that he is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. And I, am, I, I must tell you this morning, the way that he does that, the path that it takes, the road that it climbs, is an uphill climb. That's the path. That's the road. It is, the way is steep, the way is hard, and yet it is the way to glory. Being changed from glory to glory, into his image. And yet we have this treasure, chapter 4, in earthen vessels, in jars of clay. Who is enough for this? We're not enough for this. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. How can we do it? We cannot do it. Although having this ministry, verse 1 of chapter 4, we do not lose heart. By the mercy of God, we do not use heart, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
Here's the description. Here we, here we go. Normal Christian life. You ready for it? Here it goes. Verse, uh, verse 8 of chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our bodies. Even persecuted. You know, we joined with Child Evangelism Fellowship to do five-day clubs in places around the county, and especially in a particular school district, with the aim of, in the fall, having a, five, a, 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 a good news club, an, after, an afternoon, one-day-a-week Bible club within that elementary school. Some of the kids who come to our club in the summer would be in that school in the fall. That's, that, that's the structure. And the CEF has done this all over. Well, there's a group in Portland that has, has stood up against this and saying all kinds of horrible things against CEF because of what they're doing and how they're brainwashing kids and, and all of this stuff. And on it goes. It's a good work that we're doing. And yet it will be opposed by people that do not know and cannot understand the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This makes no sense to them and they will oppose it. Something that would suggest that we in ourselves cannot be good enough. That there's something inherently wrong with us. They will oppose that. And they are. Expect that trouble. Expect to be persecuted, but never, never forsaken. All right? That is our confidence in Christ. That, too, is the normal Christian life. So it moves on, then. In this new life of eternal glory that is, that, is, that is eternal, not fading. It is not temporal. In the midst of this temporary life, I was reminded of again last night, how temporary and fleeting, transient our present life is. We long for something better, don't we? Some of you are getting older. I'm identifying with that a little bit more myself these days. We're getting older and we feel in new ways that we do not like the mortality and the weakness of our fleshly bodies. They are not good enough. And we would have to agree with Paul that this corruptible cannot inherit the incorruptible. This mortal cannot inherit immortality. It has to be changed. And it will be. It will be. And we long for that. Chapter 5, verse 1. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Can you identify with that? In this temporary tent we groan. We groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we will not be unclothed. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we want to just die, but we want to be further clothed with that glorious body that God has for us. That's the thing about death. Death is not anticipated with, with, with a joy and excitement, typically. It's an unknown experience for any one of us. We've never been there before. It's okay. He has. He has. And yet, and yet, we don't long for death for death's sake, but there are times when I'm ready for that, for the glory that awaits. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And there are times in the midst of this brokenness, don't you hunger for that? We don't even know it, all of it, and yet we hunger for it at times. We long for God's promise 
Not, to, not for life to be ended, no, but for life to be stepped into in a fuller, deeper, greater way than we've ever experienced it yet. We long for the view at the summit. So keep the climb. Keep pressing on, even though it's not an easy road that we are traveling to glory. Chapter 6 then says, Working together with him, then we appeal to you then not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now is a favorable time. I listen to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is that day of salvation. We put no obstacle to anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Here it is again. Here's normal Christian life. We commend ourselves to God in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity and knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, for offense and for defense, through honor and being dishonored, through being slandered as well as praised. We are treated as impostors, and yet we are true. We are treated as unknown, and yet we are well-known. We are treated as dying, and yet, behold, we live. As sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing. As poor, and yet making many rich. As having nothing. Sometimes it seems like having nothing. And yet, possessing, as heirs of Christ, possessing everything. Oh, my and he goes from there in that in that description of the climb but not only the hardship of it but the glory of it in that description of the climb he then moves to this unusual section do not then be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness what fellowship has has light with darkness what accord has Christ with Belial what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever what agreement has the temple of god with idols for you are the temple of the living god how does that fit in with this whole uphill climb thing? Well, I was thinking in hiking terms again. And it certainly is not a matter of, of we need to isolate ourselves, pull up the drawbridges and cut ourselves off from contact with the people around us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said very plainly when he talked about righteousness and separating yourself from the unrighteous, he didn't mean from the people of the world. You can't expect people who don't know Christ to live as if they do. We, we can't hold that against them. We need to extend to them forgiveness of sin. We need to demonstrate that. How can you do that if you cut yourself off from them? But, but, on this climb, you yoke yourselves together with others. Let me give you a picture. When you're climbing in the snow, and my great ambition now is to climb Mount Hood. We've done St. Helens. That was its own interesting experience. We've done uh, Mount Adams and, and climbed up in the snow and on the ice with crampons and things. Mount Hood's a little trickier still. Mount Hood has, is its own beast, and one of the things you must do if you climb Mount Hood is you have to rope together with others. If somebody falls, you're tied to others. You're roped with others so that the, rest of, the others can arrest the fall, stop the fall. If somebody starts to slide down the slope, you know that slippery slope you hear about? Well, it's on Mount Hood. Yeah, that's where it is. And if somebody starts to slide down that slippery slope, then, then the others can dig in and anchor and uh, stop that slide so that the person is not lost. So who are you going to be roped together with? If you're going to be roped together with others on this climb, what's important? What's important is that you're roped together with others who are going the same direction. What if you're roped together with somebody that 
I don't want to go up there. It's steep up there. I want to go this way. You know, kind of the around the mountain trail that covers a lot of ground and doesn't get anywhere. Or, or, or maybe it's the back down the mountain trail. If you're roped together with somebody who is pulling in the other direction, you have no fellowship, you have no agreement, you will not make the summit. That's what he's talking about. Are you binding yourself together with others? You want to be able to better, more effectively reach out to those around us? Are you then binding yourself together with others who are on an uphill climb? Who will encourage you and you will encourage them? If you slip, they will grab you. If they slip, you will grab them. You won't cut them loose at that time. No, that's the time when they need you more than ever. But you're going to do that because you're going to climb together. And we are going to make this summit. Who's in with me? Mount Hood, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe. We'll see. It's on my list. Okay, so there then is, is in First Corinthians, that first section, so he wraps it up in chapter 7. Since we have these promises. Since we have these promises, beloved. What promises are those? God says, I will make my dwelling with you. You will be the temple of the living God. Having that promise before us. Having that glorious summit. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's press on. What does that holiness look like? It looks like Christ. It looks like the life of Christ, the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself for others. That's what we need to step into. That's the normal Christian life. Paul says, let me give you an example. He could give an example from his own life. He's going to do that, but that's really not going to be much most helpful to the Corinthians because they think they're a little better than Paul. And they're not sure they want to listen to Paul because they know Paul's poking at them. He gives them another example. He gives them an example of somebody that they wouldn't necessarily look to. Those folks down the road, small town, don't have much, can't really be much of an influence anywhere. Those are the example, these poor Christians somewhere in Macedonia. That's the example that Paul gives. Look at chapter 8 and 9. An example of the Macedonians of sacrificial serving by giving. The first of five verses of chapter 8 will really encapsulate it for us. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of their generosity on their part. For they they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. On their own accord. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. There was an offering being collected among all the churches for the poor among the Christians in Jerusalem who had been cut off from society because they had believed in Christ. That's what this offering is, is, is being collected for. And these folks, Paul, Paul was kind of hesitant to, to put that upon them because they were having a hard time themselves. And yet they begged Paul for the opportunity. We have got to participate in that. We will give ourselves to that. They said, can't you let us also give to this need for these others? And so he says, uh, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Another version reads, they gave themselves first to God 
and then to us by the will of God. Paul says we didn't expect them to do that. They didn't do it because of our expectation. They did it because they gave themselves to God. They sacrificed themselves. And Paul uses these poor among these churches in Macedonia as the example. As they have willingly sacrificed and given themselves for others, that's what you do. That's the normal Christian life. He tweaks them a little bit with an example from an unexpected, an unexpected corner that they would not have expected to be held up because the least, Jesus says, is the greatest. The one who would, who would save his life will lose it. But the one who gives his life for others finds it because that's what the Christian life is all about. That's the essence of it, to give ourselves away for others as Christ did. And so in chapter 9, I'm going to pass over those verses, but he urges them the same. He gets to chapter 10. Now here's the, the, the plea. It gets a little more emotional. It ramps up at this point. And the reason it does is not because Paul's getting all wound up. It's because this is urgent. There is a danger pressing upon them. That we are in a spiritual battle and they must join. It's not a matter of we'll just set up camp right here. If they don't press forward, they will slide backwards. So they must join this camp. They must get on the march. Otherwise, they will be losing ground. There's a danger of deception. Even as I tried to tempt the children, oh, just one, you can have one now. They're really good, right? Yeah? So the enemy will tempt us. The enemy will tempt us to, rather than delaying gratification for something better, the essence of maturity, by the way, instead of that, we want what we want now. Welcome to America. Huh? We want what we want now. I see it and I want it and I crave it and I must have it. That's why the ads are on TV. That's why marketing works and it does. So, Paul says beware. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 3. Look at the danger that he warns us of there. I wish you'd bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I have betrothed you. I have caused you to be engaged to one husband to present yourselves as a pure virgin to Christ, the church, the body of Christ, his bride engaged to him. That's the imagery. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That the enemy, just like in the garden, what he promised Eve something better than what God had promised. He promised Eve an alternative that was a deception and ended up being far less and that could not satisfy. And he continues to do the same thing today. By following the ways of the world instead of the ways of Christ. And then he unpacks those ways of Christ one more time. Look at verse 22. He said, are they servants of Christ? Because there's the essence of it, isn't it? There's the example of, are they servants of Christ? And he goes on. He says, I'm more of a servant. And how does Paul catalog his service? How How does he demonstrate who is a servant of Christ? Through the measure of suffering. Are they servants of Christ? I far more. He says, I I must be crazy. With far greater labors, with more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. On and on it goes. 
that list of the hardship endures, the uphill climb. And then from there, he urges them. His urgent appeal is for them to walk with him, to join with him. Look over at chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Third time I am ready to come to you. I'll not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours. I seek you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents give for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul says, I want you to I, I, I long for you to come with me. I long for you to join me on this call that God has put upon us. Verse or chapter thirteen, verse five. Examine yourselves. See whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? When you examine yourself, what you should see, the essence of the authenticity of the Christian life, is not, do I believe the right things? Tick, tick, tick. But in faith in Christ, the right things, he is producing his likeness within me. A life given away. So then... What does it look like? You know, we live in an age that is very busy, right? I hear that a lot. I say that a lot. We live in an age that is very, very busy, too busy for hiking. I can't go on near the trips that I want to go on this summer because I've got other stuff that I've got to do. I'm too busy. And the same danger applies to all of us in what matters most, in the real climb that we must not neglect, and yet we are too busy. We think we're too busy, but you know, we have more discretionary time than Americans have ever had in history. We have more opportunity to to choose. There are less people in the workforce in America than there have been in decades. You say, well, yeah, that's a problem with the economy, but still there's a lot of time out there that is being used probably not in the best ways. We say we are busy, but, hmm. Those who planted this church, they moved in this area, and there was very little to nothing. They built houses. They planted fields. They formed a church. They walked and rode all over this county, inviting others in. As they lived a subsistence farming existence, they had time for the things of eternity. And it was the essence of their life. Within a month of arriving here, they banded together to form a church because that mattered. That mattered. There are huge amounts of time that we spend in media. All kinds of media. And what is media? It's a false reality. Oh, there's a metaphor for life, isn't it? We give so much of our life and our energies to a false reality when Christ has put before us an eternal reality that far exceeds in comparison. But we sit down on the couch and the hours roll by and we say, wow, what time is it? And that evening too is gone. Our young men in the prime of their lives with the greatest energy they will have and guys, it'll quickly fade. And they spend so much of that prime of their lifetime sitting on a couch with a controller in their hands, winning battles that don't even exist. There is a battle that does exist. There is a battle that we are engaged in. There is a a battle for the heart and souls of men, including yours. 
devoted to Christ instead of stuff that will so quickly pass. One of the men early in the week when we meet together, he said, you know, we're going to spend our life anyway. The question really is how we will spend it. That's the question. That's the question. There are those, there are those in our church body who not only mow their own lawn, they marry the lawns of the folks around them as well. It's craziness, isn't it? Their elderly neighbors. There are those who make a habit of visiting others that can't get out of going and encouraging and just visiting and being there, praying, sharing a scripture, sharing friendship. There are those week after week who are not so youth, but they are with the youth because they know that in this formative, high-drama time, they willingly step into that drama to help others find their way through the midst of it, giving themselves for the sake of others. There are, there, are, there are those within a church family, any church family, that are changing the diapers of other people's kids. Why would you do that? Now think about that. If that's your experience, I know I've been there. There's not, it's, changing your own kid's diaper is just, it's, it's just there's, there's nothing really to it, it seems. But somebody else's kid's diaper? Ew. It is just, ew. I don't want to. And yet, and yet it happens week after week after week. It can be little things like that. In the evening at 7 o'clock. Folks, there is nothing on at 7 o'clock. Why not call someone? Check in. Say something to encourage. Maybe a, a short word of prayer on the phone. Let them know you'll be praying for them as you've talked together. The summer of service on Wednesday nights. I would love to see that more. I would love to see a a, a much broader group join in. But we need not only a broader group of those serving, but we definitely need as well a broader group of places to serve. Neighbors, friends, people, you know, outside our church family that we could show the love of Christ to. We will give our time for it, will you? We will give our time for that. Oh, help us. Introduce us. There is something that you and I can do that will help us to carry one another's burden. You know, the thing about an uphill climb is it can be all the more difficult depending on what you carry. Depending on how much stuff is in there. Sometimes some of it needs to be unloaded. I love the people that load their pack down with food because then we can help them. We can just eat that. And then it's lighter. Sometimes they carry the darndest stuff up the mountains. And all you can do is help to spread out the load and bear one another's burden and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Are we willing to do that for one another? I could spend all afternoon chewing somebody out about why did you bring that? But at the end of the day, really, we need to carry it. So let's carry it. Let's share it around. Let's carry one another's burden and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Somebody's going to come back on that on my next hiking trip. I know they're going to remind me of that. The essence of church family. Wrap up with this. The essence of church family is this, that we are, as a family, you want connection together. One of the ways you find it, one of the best ways I suggest you find it is by serving together. By engaging and giving yourself and serving together, by serving together with others and lives intersecting, you will there be growing together with others. And in that growing together with others, in giving ourselves away, we will be growing in worship. We'll be lifting up together our Lord Jesus. We will be making our way up that path 
toward his glory. That is the essence of the Christian life. That is the uphill climb that Paul calls us to. Where can I give myself away? Lord, what would you have me to do? I don't want to fill your time with my programs, but I want to urge you, urge you to give yourself away this day, this week, for the glory of Christ, for the good of another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that on the midst of a sunny, wonderful afternoon with, with much fun before us, we can yet be reminded of our Savior who loved life enough to give his life away, who loved us enough to give us real life following him. Oh, Lord, protect us from the enemy who would distract us away and instead that we might press on after that life of Christ that he has given us. Today, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.